Hi everyone, welcome to Behind the Grid, where we explore worldviews from around the world and the key moments that change them forever. What I want to offer you right now is an opportunity to experience your world through someone else's story and to perceive your challenges from a fresh perspective so that you can get past them and reach your wildest goals. I'm your host, Chris Owl, and welcome to the show. Before we start, I want to give a big thank you to our sponsor, Essential Vibes Frequency Jewelry. They're a really cool company. They found a way to put frequencies into metals and crystals, which have different effects when you wear them on your body. If you want to check them out, go to essentialvibes.ca slash owl. Today, my guest is Hideto Edward Uno. And Hideto is living out on a monastery right now, so his internet connection isn't very good. That said, most of the interview is totally fine, but we did end early because the internet started to not get very good. So just keep that in mind and enjoy the show. Today I'm speaking with Hidepto Edward Uno. Hidepto is an experienced channeler and studies under the Tibetan Buddhist lineage. He recently came back from a long pilgrimage across the Himalayas, where he filmed what has become the most popular documentary on Guru Rinpoche, the founder of Tibetan Buddhism. Hidepto, welcome to Behind the Grid. Thanks for having me. Nice to finally talk to you. Yeah, we've been talking a bit online, and it's nice to actually hear your voice for the first time, uh, outside of the documentary, of course. (laughs) I also went to India for six months uh, recently, too. Oh, wow. We'll have to get into that as well, then. That's so cool. There's so much I want to talk with you about. (laughs) Start with your story. For those who might not be familiar with you, where did you start off in your, let's say, your spiritual journey or your journey with your your worldview? And how did you get from where you started to where you are now? Well, like you, I suppose, um, I started off Christian, and I really loved Jesus, that started it off with my devotion. You know, Hindus would call it bhakti, you know. From there, I kind of left that for a while and then started to get into um, even oh, I mean, a little bit hallucinogens. Sure, that helped, you know, like later on in my life and kind of open stuff up. Relatively recently, I did started with the Tibetan Buddhism um, because of my um, fascination with Guru Rinpoche and how it's kind of it was kind of a fun esoteric angle that was different from exoteric Christianity that I was a part of when I was young, you know. So it was it was exciting in like a sexy way, so to speak. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. So you were saying there's a difference between uh, exoteric and esoteric. Why don't you expand on that a bit and tell me about? What is it about Guru Rinpoche and the the Tibetan lineage practice that specifically drew you in? Well, just the fact that he was exciting. He's, I mean, he's exciting in many ways. I mean, he has women, he has concubines, I mean, concubines, he has what they call courtesan. But as far as for me personally, I'll just say it's, it's mystics, you know, it's the mystical path, which Christianity has too, you know, um, which is very similar to the yogis, the Mahasiddhas, the mystics, you know, and it's, the hidden teachings, you know, to be very general, um, not the teachings for the masses. And this is where you get into like cities, which would be like accomplishments, realizations that it includes 
quote unquote, like magical things and, you know, doing things that are so in that reason is very exciting, obviously, you know, um, of course the spiritual path isn't about that ultimately, of course, but it's a good, it was a good way for me to get excited and interested in, in that path because it's a direct, this is a, here's a better angle for it. It's not just about the cities, but it's a direct path to God. You know what I mean? It's not, I don't need a priest or I don't need, you know, uh, a book to be the middleman. You know, it's just a, a direct experience of God, so to speak. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. So rather than a roundabout way to get to God where you're going through some sort of um, other entity or character like like jesus or something you are taking a direct approach right to god um but how would would you say that using guru rinpoche would be similar to using like jesus christ in terms of using a a third party um enlightened being to access god how how would you say guru rinpoche and the tibetan faith is different there Tibetans uh, talk about view. View is very important, which is very obvious. You know, the way you look at the world is going to change everything, you know, and this is, this could be applied to the most mundane thing to the most profound. And so the fact that we use ultimately, for instance, Guru Rinpoche is the nature of your own mind. It's the pure, clear, empty awareness that is the nature of your mind or consciousness and all conscious beings. And so it's different because of the view of we have. Um, it's not about worshiping. It's about using him as a tool. And in fact, it's kind of like a fake it till you make it. Because with the Tibetan Buddhism, they have deity yoga and you're actually becoming the deity. So it's just a means of tricking yourself because you might feel like you're worthless or we've been trained to think lowly of ourselves um, in many ways, we would probably say. And so when you see yourself as the deity, then you become this greater being and it tricks you into becoming better because all is mind. And so, you know... Wow. Yeah, that that's really cool. I, I it's funny, I do see the similarities between where Christians say to do what Jesus would do and act like Jesus and the idea of working with Guru Rinpoche as well and acting like Guru Rinpoche. I think it seems to be that there's just different characters which show maybe the many sides of God or divinity. Uh, so you could just pick the one that resonates with you most instead of just defaulting to one that uh, you grew up with. They're all the same, they say. You know, no matter what you pick, it's all the same. They're all just enlightened beings or the enlightened aspect of your mind that's already there. Um, but the, once again, the difference is the way you look at it. If If Jesus is outside of you and he's this amazing being that... You can't ever, you know, even come close to because you're so worthless and only Jesus can save you. Well, there's a difference between I make a joke like save yourself, like be your own savior. You need something and you can't you it's not within you. 
there's a big difference between you need something outside of you and it's already there and you just have to realize it. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it is different. And I, I can see how there is in, it seems like in Tibetan Buddhism and Christianity, both there is this part of it that's for the masses, which is more ritualistic and more external. And then there is a part of it where you can take it further and you can make it more of an internal personal experience. That's totally true. It's the way you look at it. But at the same time, we have to be realistic. I think that's one thing that uh, I feel like we're too robotic, whether we're worldly or we're Christian or we're Buddhist, according to our sect. And it's like we're so robotic, which is, you know, one thing at a time. But we have to see what's best for us, you know, and we have to zoom out and be able to have self-awareness not in the spiritual sense, but in the relative mundane sense, we need to just be aware of the type of uh, inclinations we have, the the afflictions we have, um, what are our obstacles and what are we good at as well. And so I think that's almost more than anything, I think being honest with yourself is probably one of the most important things for the spiritual path and the mundane path, actually. Yeah, that makes sense. That self-honesty is crucial. It's been crucial to my path as well. So I want to ask you a bit more about Tibetan Buddhism and specifically the way that you experience it. What would you say are the core principles that you must believe in order to be considered Tibetan Buddhist? I recently read a, a Thich Nhat Hanh quote that said, Buddhism isn't really a religion, it's the practice, and we don't worship the Buddha. Everyone's different, so that's fine, and there's multiple layers to every single thing that Buddhism has. That's something people have to understand. Like, There's multiple layers, like soteric, esoteric, they talk about hidden teaching, and then the secret teaching, you know, so every single thing in Buddhism has, at least in Tibetan Buddhism, it has many layers to it. So we can't take things at the face value, you know. But anyway, to answer your question, what do we have to believe? I mean, we have to practice, we have to want to practice uh, compassion. It's all about love, honestly. Um, we have to want to, um, and I'm talking mainly about Mahayana and uh, Vajrayana Buddhism. It's all about the Bodhisattva path, which is honestly, it's like extreme love, like extremist love and compassion. Because it's, you are vowing to never become enlightened until every being in the universe is enlightened first. Putting yourself last and putting every act and action, intention, aspiration for the benefit of all. Um, and so it's taking it to the extreme, extreme. And, you know, whether we take that literally or not, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is you just, you know, shoot for the moon and at least you're among the stars kind of thing. What else? Well, you practice mindfulness, you practice love and compassion. You believe that the uh, you, that all is mind. That's a belief. Well, there's a lot there. Wow. I think one of the ones that's most interesting to me, well, I mean, all of them seem really interesting to me, but one of the ones that really stood out right there at the end is all is mind. What does that mean to you? How can everything be mind? All is consciousness. I was reading uh, 
I think, I don't know if it was unlimited power or seven habits of highly effective people. And they were talking how the evidence shows that we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. Vajrayana is totally non-dual. And that's a very different perspective, very different view. And so when you say all is mind, the subject, you, is the object. So that is the ultimate non-duality, which is there's no you and there's no other. And uh, I can get into a lot of different things, but one thing is concept of emptiness, which isn't nothingness. Emptiness means... For for starters, uh, from the Madhyamka perspective, one way to explain it in the simplest way, interconnection. We could say all is energy. That's kind of the same thing. Even though we don't see air molecules, they're bouncing around and they're hitting the, the walls. So really, there's just one big ball of molecules and atoms, and that's just from a physical standpoint. Um, and then we can get into a quantum level thing. It's very much like quanta, you know, the quantum perspective. Uh, but then I can also say interdependence, interconnection. Um, emptiness is that all things are just interconnected. So where does where do you stop and where does the other thing start? There's really just one big ball of energy we can call God, you know, um, or in Buddhism, they would say Dharmakaya, the source. So I, one thing, back to Thich Nhat, Thich Nhat Hanh, one thing he says is when you hold a piece of paper, you're actually holding a cloud because the cloud rains, the rain goes into the dirt, the dirt, the water goes into the tree, and then the tree becomes paper. And so where can you really say the water molecules that were in the tree aren't in that paper? You know what I mean? It's like, and the cloud is still in the paper, the trees in the paper, and that applies to all things. And so that's the whole emptiness thing, interdependence. And there's really no difference. We separate things, but so there's no separation even on a physical level, you know? When can the... When, when do you say that the water molecule is water molecule or just became the tree? You see what I mean? Yeah, that's such a cool thought. I guess what I am struggling to, to make the connection on is how energy becomes mind. Like I can see how everything is, is energy. That makes sense. And I can also understand esoterically how our mind creates our reality. But when it comes to saying all is mind are you saying that that the process by which i used to think and and experience the world are you saying that that is the same energy with which everything is made um no i mean it's 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 what you just said um mind is just the word that we apply to our brains but in tibetan buddhism it's interesting because when they say mind they point to their heart and a uh, better word would be, it's more like consciousness. And I'm, I'll, I'll bet you that there's a connection between this whole consciousness and energy. Because, I mean, all is this one infinite zero and the source. Everything we see comes from the source. Everything we don't see comes from the source. So that's all. I mean, it's, it's pretty much what you said. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like everything was at one point connected, even uh, 
well, across like every single major belief system, they have this idea of everything being either a big bang or an initial word or an initial, some, some sort of initial moment of creation where everything was all one. And if you're saying that the, the cloud is still the paper, then everything would all be one if you go back far enough. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. And I guess we could say it's consciousness, energy, and then Buddhists also break things down into Buddha nature, which also includes bliss, which does include the feelings of uh, pleasure when you have sex or the feelings of pleasure when you eat something delicious. It all goes back to that same bliss that is the original bliss, or you could say love or pleasure, you know, bliss, it's kind of interconnected. And um, so you have clarity, which would be awareness, and then you have bliss, and then you have emptiness, and these all kind of mix together as the components of the source of things. Of course, the ultimate source, I guess, is probably beyond that, I guess, but they break them down into those components. Yeah, it's it's nice when people can give us these uh, these stepping stones through which to understand something that goes beyond our, our comprehension. <laughs> Bliss, clarity, emptiness, these things can be found by just being empty, neutral. So when you meditate... You know, you can meditate and try to emphasize love and compassion and actually work with your brain, which would be a conceptual type of meditation. But you could also go beyond that and just be empty and be a zero. And that's actually more powerful because then you're tapping into that zero of all things. You know, it's like the quantum level. And then you're attached to all things. And with what we just said, that means that you're tapping into the bliss, clarity, emptiness, you know, and the love that is there because you're breaking down all of your concepts and going to the source directly, as opposed to conceptualizing love or feeling bliss. When you feel kind of zero, you're actually getting into it in a deeper level. Does that make sense? Like it's like being a zero is more powerful because zero contains infinity as opposed to being a million, which would be like a concept and a feeling or a thought. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. But I I think part of the reason why I can understand that is because I've done things like DMT and I've done a lot of deep meditation. I know know that this type of, of statement can be challenging to understand though. Zero is like a a place of infinite potential and infinite potential, you could say, has more power than anything that's uh, actualized or, or realized, something specific. First of all, that's hilarious because that was the name of my hip hop group. <laughs> so good intuition there, you know. But yeah, exactly. I guess anything that we think or feel has manifested. And so it's coming out of the source, but it's not as powerful as trying to tap directly into the source by basically being neutral and being that infinite emptiness. 
I find that whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed by constructs uh, or, or emotions or thoughts or feelings or whatever it is, I, I find that when I can go and rest and become as as zero like as I can, <laughs> uh, then uh, mm-hmm. I feel a lot more at ease and uh, I feel like I have a lot more power to deal with my my challenges. If love is the source or a component of source, if bliss is the component of source and clarity is the component of source, then the more you become less of a you, then you're going to tap into more of the God or Dharmakaya. So that's with, there's a, with that assumption, the more you break down and let go of everything that you think you are and trying and doing, the more you're just going to become this infinite potential, this become uh, connected to God and become connected to the mystical path. Yeah, that's very powerful. Wow. I wanted to ask you, how has Tibetan Buddhism and your work with Guru Rinpoche helped you reach your goals in life? Well, first of all, I mean, recently, as far as my goals in life, that implies the relative world. No, not necessarily, because it could I could have, quote unquote, spiritual goals. Do you mean it on the relative or just any kind of goals, I guess? Uh, you know, I'm interested to hear your answer on both, actually. Just recently, um, we talked about it a little bit. Just recently, I started focusing on the relative path because I had an aha moment where in Buddhism, they say, you know, uh, in the Heart Sutra, they say, Form is emptiness and emptiness is form. There's this uh, teaching where the relative or the mundane or the regular world, physical world, you know, mental and physical world, that's the relative world. Um, But then they say how the relative is within the ultimate world. And so when you, in Zen, when you do mundane things, that are that is the ultimate too, you know? And so I had, that gave me a spiritual reason to uh, do mundane things, include including exercise, goals financially or whatever. And so um, how has it helped me? I mean, meditation alone has helped me so much, you know? The, the teachings have helped me so much in so many ways, actually, which we've touched upon, but um, I can get into the other stuff, but with meditation, I mean, just to be stable, stabilize my emotions, stabilize my thoughts, have clarity, um, get, in fact, get guidance, intuitive guidance even. So that's obviously helps me a lot because I can tap into an intuition that can guide me, which I'm not going to say everyone's going to get on that level, but I mean, the more you meditate, it will happen. Yeah, I can I can get a sense from when you're talking that it's just helped you across every single area of your life. Um, but I want to ask, is it possible that there is a limitation or a goal that Tibetan Buddhism wouldn't be useful for? No, I would say no, because Buddhism is so great because it doesn't have to be dogmatic at all. In fact, that's the, that's more correct, honestly. And you can be a Christian Buddhist, you can be a Hindu Buddhist, you could be an um, you know, Jewish Buddhist, like Robert Thurman says, you could Jubu. And the relative, the relative world is included. I, in fact, asked my guru um, 
Because when you look at the teachings or or writings, when you look at the writings, they're always talking about the ultimate world. And like you hear about these ancient masters that go into a cave and meditate there for 20 years, modern masters too. And so then people have this desire to want to run away from the world that they live in and that karma has given them. And they run away, which is a duality. They're running away from the relative world and creating a duality, a separation, so that they can become these monks. And because they probably feel guilty and they have an aversion to the, the fact that they haven't been practicing, and so they push it away. They push away their normal world so that they can make up for it and, and get started and be this ultimate monk, you know? But... Then, but so then when you hear the teachings and the stories to talk about the ultimate world, but then when I ask, when anyone asks my guru stuff about, hey, should I become a monk or should I run away into a cave and do retreat for like many years? And 99% of the time he says no, because he says, just be where you are, you know, start with where you are. First of all, you might regret it. Second of all, you're creating a duality and a separation and you're running away. You know, you got to deal with the karma that was given to you right in front of your face. So it was really, it was a deep thing for me to really see that. I knew the teaching, but for me to apply it, you know, so it's to see that, Hey, that person in front of my face that I don't like, Hey, that, this, this job that I have in front of me that I'm living right now, that's it. That's my karma. And this is it. Zen would say, this is it. This is enlightenment. You know, um, you just have to realize that the ultimate is within this relative, which includes our karma and that there's not, they're not one in the same, you know? So the most mundane thing is the spiritual path. And in a lot of ways is more the spiritual path. Um, I'll end by saying there's a Zen saying, uh, okay, when I was a worldly person, I saw rivers and mountains. When I was on the spiritual path, I didn't see rivers and I didn't see mountains. And now that I've become enlightened, I see rivers and mountains. And that sounds kind of like a mind, mind F, but uh, what it means is, Okay, a worldly person sees rivers and mountains. He or she sees things at face value. Then when he's on the path and he learns about non-duality, he sees sees the uh, quanta. He sees energy. He sees the interdependence. He sees the non-duality. And so he rejects the relative. He pushes away the relative and that includes the relative in our life. But so when he physically sees the rivers and mountains, he's like, that's not a river. That's not a mountain. Then when the person's enlightened, they merge those two things seamlessly. And once again, they see rivers and mountains, but from an enlightened perspective. And that reminds me of the quote before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water after enlightenment, chop wood, Mm -hmm. carry water. Yeah, that's a good one because I just, I told someone that yesterday because my friend was telling me how he had this amazing dream. And then after that, he realized he was one with all beings and he was just, you know, he had this, this epiphany, which sounds great. And it is, but Buddhism would always tell you like, don't get caught up in the experiences and these realizations 
whether they're, well, first of all, because honestly, most of them are just fabrications, but even if it's not a fabrication, what, what point is there in dwelling on that? And it, just take one step at a time, you know, after, after enlightenment, you're still walking one step at a time along the path. You know, there's no difference really. And with Zen, the most mundane thing is enlightenment. When you're meditating, that is enlightenment. That's another separation, right? If there was a separation between me and meditating or me and the future enlightened me, it's all right here. Everything is everything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to ask you, you briefly touched on this about being able to be a Christian Buddhist or a Muslim Buddhist or even probably a materialist, atheist Buddhist, like like someone like Sam Harris or some, something like that. But I want to ask you, how does Tibetan Buddhism view other faiths? Do they view them as complementary? Do they view them as uh, false or as a hindrance? How do you see other faiths from your perspective? They see it as, you know, it's all, it's all good. Um, there's not this need to be in our club or you're not, can't be a part of it. You know, you can't, you can't hang out with us if you're not part of our club. Um, and they'll say you can't judge another person's mind, you know, like just because someone's, um, even someone that's acting like they're like, you know, crazy or, or very a low vibration, they'll say even people like that, like you can't trust, I mean, you can't judge their mind. You don't really don't know what's going on because we have all of these stories about bodhisattvas, which, um, a Buddha would be the ultimate level of, of realization. A Bodhisattva is like one step below that. And, you know, they vow to help all beings. And sometimes they say, you know, Bodhisattvas could be, you know, Hitler. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, I'm just saying, you know, it, we don't know. We don't know what's going on on the deeper levels. Our egos and our constructs you know, have all of these ideas, but, you know, we really, we know that we don't know. I think that's a really healthy place to be, you know? And so um, to answer your question more, it's fine. It's all good. Um, and sure, we have our own kind of models of belief, but we're not worried about anyone else, you know, and if they want to learn from Buddhism, we're happy. We're really happy about it. Oh, awesome. That, I mean, that makes sense too, because when, what, from what I've seen in Buddhism, it has a lot to do with uh, the mind and working with your mind and finding that mindful awareness and that can help anyone grow in really any worldview. Yeah, I mean, mindfulness is like so trendy right now, which is great. Um, the only difference would be, I mean, the good thing is that it's creating awareness for the teachings like Buddhism and Hinduism and stuff, but, um, and they're helping themselves. So that's, that's great. You know, 
it's all good. If it's, who cares what the reason is to get you in the door? It's, and if it helps you, that's wonderful. And, you know, as my, as the Kempo here would say, I rejoice, you know, I rejoice. It's, if you're getting better and healthier and happier, then who could be, who could hate on that, you know? And, but I will just say the only difference is that the mindfulness movement is about feeling better and relaxed and stuff like that. While in Buddhism, it would be to become liberated or enlightened and to do it with the intention of helping all beings. Uh, yeah, I can see the distinction. It has to do with the result of practice or the reason why you practice. And yeah, I can see how getting rested and relaxing could be a step on the way to to some sort of full full realization of, of enlightenment. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a bit about your travels because you made a documentary traveling all around the Himalayas. Um, and you said you recently have gone to India as well for six months, which is, I mean, I'm sure that's been a really transformative experience. How has your travels helped you in your, your personal worldview and how, how has your worldview changed as a result of your travels? Well, I, I wanted to go to India, well, for obvious reasons, because of the Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, I like Advaita as well, which is very similar to non-dual Buddhism. Um, and, uh, but I really wanted to go see how they lived and how their, the poor villagers lived. And that was really amazing. It's so funny how... Um, the poor people seem to, the simple people, the poor people seem to always be the happiest, even in India, you know. They have the biggest smiles on their faces. They're so sweet and warm, um, innocent. Uh, you know, kids are playing running around with like trash and rocks everywhere barefoot and having a great time with literally nothing like no ball or nothing you know and um so excited to talk to me and it's like 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 becoming ecstatic like just because i high-fived this little kid and he was like shaking with ecstasy (laughs) which sounds i mean i'm just i mean honestly i mean that's the best way i could put it that just goes to show i mean someone could get a high five and we have to do like hard drugs or something you know (laughs) so (laughs) um but uh so yeah, it was really amazing. I wanted to see how they lived and it, it's obviously humbling and um, shows you India's kind of tough because, well, especially for, for an American, it's tough because you have to watch what you eat um, and you can get, you know, bacteria, you can get like a infection if you swim, which happened to me, or you could get diseases, you could die from a mosquito bite and they're everywhere. And, um, there's many different things you have to worry about. And it's the roads aren't structured, um, people everywhere, animals everywhere, crap, animal crap everywhere. And so there's so many different things in a lot of ways, it's kind of hectic, 
But um, so that was really shows you how much I helped me appreciate America's structure. Um, the, the roads here and the driving here is like so structured and like so like easy. And but at the same time, that's what makes America kind of kind of boring in a way because India, there's so much chaos and like excitement and action. Um, and here, you know, people, oh, another thing that I was so powerful is the community. The sense of community in India is amazing. Like strangers, um, helping each other out. And not only does that show, okay, for instance, um, there was a lady, um, that was crammed in the bus with her holding her baby. And then without saying a word, this guy like reaches over from like, a few feet over to like say to tell her hey i'm gonna grab your baby from you and first of all no american woman would even allow that um second of all for him to offer and he wanted to hold her baby because she was kind of in an awkward position then after he's tired of holding him the baby he put the baby in the back seat and just gave it to the guy who was sitting in the back seat and here's this random guy that didn't even ask for the baby holding the baby on his lap and just it's so, so stuff like that was really amazing and beautiful to see <laughs> wow yeah that, i mean that would never fly in north america that's that's incredible. <laughs> I'm I saw in your documentary there's a couple moments that really intrigued me. One of them were the different handprints and footprints that you went to in the different they're all in different rocks and in different monasteries and stuff around the Himalayas. How how did you how, what did you feel from that sort of experience? Did you feel like there was a, a major, a major shift in you as you touched these sacred objects or were you feeling like it was more about what you put into it with your expectation? Uh, I'd have to look into my intuition with that one, but um, because I always try to keep this kind of uh, empty awareness. So first of all, I'll say, no, it wasn't, it wasn't like I touched it and then like a lightning bolt shot through my body or something. But I like to try to keep it in that kind of neutral awareness. Even, if, even after I went to these places, I didn't try to like kind of judge. I just wanted to just, of course, I, I changed on many levels mentally and probably on a cellular level. But I kind of didn't want to like judge, you know, but no. Nothing really specifically happened. Um, it was just amazing to see, at least on a level that I'm consciously aware of, but it was just amazing to see for myself so that it can shift my, my view on a, on a real in front of me level, you know, no denying that it's there. And so it was a paradigm shift in that way, you know. Oh yeah, just that you could see that somebody really did the accomplishment and you put a lot of effort to prove to yourself that somebody has done the accomplishment that you were working towards. Yeah, I can see how that would be really um, empowering and encouraging for, for spiritual practice. I noticed there was this one point 
in the documentary where you showed a clip of a woman who had lit herself on fire and she was just standing completely still. And when you had mentioned earlier about the sense of radical compassion that Tibetan Buddhism offers, would you say that an example like that where this nun cared more about the statement that she had to get out to the world than her own life, would you say like something like that would be an example of the radical compassion that they have? Yeah, so they talk about wrathful energy, you know. Um, there's those deities that look really scary. They look like demons, but they say how they're actually more compassionate than the ones that look all peaceful and pretty. Um, for instance, like a mother that's has to be firm with her son if he's running across the street or something. You know, you have to you have to just kind of have this aggressive energy, but it's in the name of love and protecting the son. I don't know. People have will have a different view, I think, because some people think because in a way that's kind of it's in a way it's like a, against the teachings, maybe in a way, because you aren't taking the middle path where you want to find the always find the middle ground in every situation. If someone is abusing you, you take a middle ground. And this is a really kind of a weird, complicated or, or difficult thing for uh, most people to understand. But this is kind of the teaching where you take the middle ground and you don't, maybe because you don't even believe that you're a self, you know, so you're not really worried about, you know, what someone is doing to me. But um, you take a middle ground, you know, you, you just, you, you see how you can, you can make a solution without being extreme on with with one person getting what they want or you getting what you want but um i don't know honestly i don't know because that's obviously it's happening and many people are doing this um i, I think a lot of it is just shows you their hopelessness and the desperation um, and the fact that they feel like nothing's going to change. And so uh, it might just be a matter of desperation and the fact that they have no, they don't, they don't see themselves as a self, I guess. And then they just want to make a statement. There's just nothing else to do. You know, that's, I think honestly what it is, it's just more, it's, bad you know really it's uh it's really sad to see that that level of, of desperation for sure uh, i i do wish everybody in in tibet well and i do hope that they are able to regain their independence from china well thank you so much for for coming on the show that i really enjoyed talking with you and discovering more about tibetan buddhism and the way that you in particular view tibetan buddhism your version of it so thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and if you have any final words, um, definitely say them. Uh, and uh, I just want to let everyone know that you do have a documentary on YouTube. Uh, people can check it out by YouTube and Guru Rinpoche documentary. And yours is the top one. Let's just see what my intuition has to say, you know, which they did say something just now, but let's see if that's okay. Of course, yeah. I am you and just say that life is not that serious.
it is only serious to what you would say is the ego. And if we are learning anything in spirituality and religion, it is to try to remember that life isn't so serious and that we are not the ego, as the teachings always say. We must recognize that the fear of the body dying and the fear of losing and the fear of wanting this and not getting it or losing it is just the problem. And that there's something so much deeper that we are, but we just have to try to remember and realize that. Um, and that would be all. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. How do you, how, I'm just curious, Adepto, how does channeling work for you? Like, what do you, what do you do to, to channel? What is it in particular you're channeling? What am I channeling or what do I do to channel? Both of it, both of it, both of it. <laughs> um, Okay, um, I'm just, a, you know, as you know, I was, I've channeled, you know, other beings, you know, ghosts, spirits that claim to be certain things, but I found that there's lots of imposters and it's really hard to know what it is. Of course, ultimately you're like, what is, what is mind anyway? Like everything is consciousness, everything is energy. And so, sure, you could zoom out enough to where you could, you know, say whatever, but, or you could say it's an aspect of your own mind. But anyways, in the relative sense, I would have experiences where I didn't really, where I noticed that after they said something, they ended up kind of manipulating, like they were just using me for energy or something. And so now I just channel my intuition, my higher self or whatever, you know, allegedly. And um, yeah, it's a different feeling. It's, it's more so, yeah, I'm channeling my intuition. Uh, at least that's what I think. And I don't really go into channeling other things anymore unless I, you know, unless I just do it for fun or something. But, um, and how it's, well, in the documentary, it shows how it happened. But, uh, I mean, other than my karma, just being, you know, being this way, or, you know, we all have our inclinations and our past lives, but, um, you just let go, you know, uh, so much of spirituality is just letting go and, um, the more you can just get out of the way, it just comes out. And, you know, people can try things. I mean, they have to be careful though, but yeah, people can try things like, you know, to try to like, just, just relax and see when you get what you get, like what kind of message do you get? You know, relax, ask a question and see if you get an answer. Anyone can do this, you know? Um, Channeling makes it a little harder because it's easier to just use your mind, you know, you just use your brain and you're just inside your mind, the voice, the inner voice. That's what I mean. But then you have to get the voice, your, your actual physical voice to do it. But, um, 
Yeah. Did I answer the question? Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Adepto. I'm going to close the show right now. I'm just going to say thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time and your insights. No problem. I mean, thank you so much. And it was really, really cool. It was really, really fun to connect. And uh, hopefully we'll be connecting for eons to come until we're enlightened. (laughs) I love it.